We don't need plans that are local. We need the world to come together as one unit, with one vision, with an ability to basically, you know, not demarcate our interests as a country, but to demarcate the world's interests as a globe. And and hopefully, hopefully not. Hopefully, Africa will play a big role in that, and the cultural production coming out of Africa will help define that conversation. This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Refilu Mpakanyane. Powered by I2 Art Insurum, Season 1 of the Latitudes Podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insurum. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. My guests on this episode are South African-born, U.S.-based friends of more than 30 years, Stefan Simkowitz and David Altman. Businessman Stefan Simkowitz is well-known, some may say notorious, as an art collector, curator and advisor who owns gallery spaces in the Los Angeles area and runs a number of art residencies in the U.S. and South Africa. As an art patron and vocal proponent of social media as a legitimate way of discovering, distributing and popularizing the fine arts, Stefan's convention-bucking approach to discovering and growing talent has been a lightning rod for intense debates around the power dynamics and responsibilities between artists and gatekeepers in the industry. You'll hear in our conversation that this role is something he's well aware of. Now, David Altman is a producer and businessman who's been involved in development and charitable work for decades. His work has taken him to the US, Italy, Kuwait and Kenya. And having travelled widely in over 75 countries, he maintains an extensive network in both the private and public sectors internationally. This conversation focuses on his work running the Cape Town Art Residency. The wide-ranging conversation touches on the political and spiritual and everything in between. You'll also experience the fascinating dynamic of the two friends as the ever-diplomatic and gracious David Altman makes room for Stefan Simkowitz to wax lyrical and shoot straight from the hip, right from the get-go. David Altman, Stefan Simkowitz, thank you so much for your time today and welcome to the Latitudes podcast. It's really cool to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. I'm going to start at the beginning. And you're both South African born and US based or working in the US as well. When it comes to this sort of geographic distance and perhaps a an emotional distance, perhaps an intellectual distance that your current location affords you, what do you think that might be in terms of your relationship, your understanding, or your just your view of of African art? Uh, Stefan, I'm going to start with you. I don't think I have a view of African art per se. I think that I have a 
in innate emotional and spiritual love for Africa, a belief that I think when you're African, whatever that is, you have a sense of a continent that has secret magical powers that when you come to America and immigrate, you, you just never experience again. I think that sits with you in a very, very unique way. And it connects you to something that is, is incomprehensible and powerful and stays with you for the rest of your life. And I don't think you can disconnect from it mm. fully. And I think what happens with culture and art, it opens up those gateways between your sort of heart and mind and this sort of connection, essentially. And I don't think it's intellectual. I think it's instinctual. And I think that is, for me at least, a feeling that, that, that I don't have an intellectual or academic attachment or process yeah. to it. It's, it's an instinctual need as far as an interest in connecting to the continent. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also a feeling that I think once you've lived in other places, especially America, you sense this alienation and disconnection from community. And you start to analyze how communities are built in America. And the communities that are very strong, and I'm, I'm a wealthy white guy in America, the communities that I see are essentially circles of wealthy white yeah, people. Yeah. But working communities of immigrants, Latinos, people of color, is you see really strong, you see a much stronger community bonds between certain communities, especially in the Hispanic and Latinx communities in Los Angeles you experience. And I think the connection to Africa replaces that connection in a sense, oh. in a sense, gives you some kind of spiritual hole. Mm -hmm. And you find yourself without even thinking, at least me, Personally, I find myself listening to African music all day long, listening to music from the continent. And it's not, again, it's not something that is intentional. It's something that 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 occurs essentially naturally. And then I think that connects me to sort of art from the continent. I see, I see such amazing work from the continent. I'm, I live in Los Angeles, and of course people collect, especially now, artists of color and but they still don't connect to the, the huge, the huge expansiveness of creativity and cultural production coming out of the continent. Yeah. It's a very specific kind of consumption. So I'd say that's what it is for yeah. me. Uh, and we'll get into that. And I think we'll expand on that, which is, I'm talking to you on the 4th of July, <laughs> an interesting or contentious holiday, as we alluded to just before we started recording in, in the United States. And just the idea of cultural production and the consumption of cultural production from the continent at a time where specifically black voices and ideas are being silenced in the United States. And what that might look like for yourselves as, as art dealers, brokers, gal gallerists, or people who are incubating I'm, I'm, artists. I'm, 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 I'm going to interrupt you. Sure. Black voices are not being silenced in the United States. Black voices are being consumed in the United States. I'll tell you the, what I'm the, referring the, the, to specifically. The, yeah. Go tell me what you're referring to. But specifically, when you look at laws banning books, certain books, certain teachings or classes or courses at universities, those laws passed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and movements around the opposition against critical race theory, or quite frankly, just talking about history as it happened by the far right in the United States. But carry on. I want, I want to hear the rest of your point. 
I don't, I sense there's, there, there's an attachment to a, a more traditional ritual-based way of life as America has continued to get more alienated, isolated, deconstructed. Uh, so I think that the, I think, I, I live in LA, so I don't live in Florida. Sure. So I see a huge consumption of black voices. I see corporations essentially utilizing black voices for marketing, for products. I don't. I read in the New York Times, Ronda Sanders bans a book, but it's, mm -hmm. it's the reporting in America and globally, it's always, okay, they banned a book. They can ban books. No one reads books. It's irrelevant. It's like, we're going to ban books, but no one reads in America. So it's like, we're already there. We're, the culture's already dumbed down. You can ban reading. You can ban this. It's irrelevant. The, the country, from an education perspective, has been so eviscerated. It's, mm -hmm. it's irrelevant. They're not reading about anything. They're not like the, but I think black culture in America, in music, in fashion, it's being oh, consumed sure. globally. Sure. So Corporatized and. Pharrell becoming the lead designer of, honestly, I'm going to say something crazy. Look at Pharrell's house. Pharrell lives in a big, ugly, terrible house. His living room looks like an airport lounge in Cleveland. <laughs> it's not like this is a guy. He's, he wears nice clothes, but he becomes a figurehead. He, he's not a designer with 50 years of great experience with amazing innovations. Louis, the brand has those designers working in-house. So every, they're us, utilizing black culture as a beachhead, for, but underneath, they're not coming. They're not looking at Africa and the complexity of Africa, they're not looking at artists who are dealing with real issues, dealing with environmentalism, degradation, migration. It, the, the, America has done a really good job in in utilizing whatever trend there is, mm. whatever righteous trend there is to, to monetize it. And then globally, Ron DeSantis banned books in Florida. There was a silencing of black voices. I, I, I think it's the wrong conversation. Okay. There's not a silencing of black mm. voices. There is a utilizing of black voices and of culture that, that effectively renders its real innate power it, it, it disempowers in a sense because it utilizes it, it in a very specific way. It commoditizes it. and it, A cynical it, it way, renders, right? In a very cynical, a cynical way, way and it's extractive. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like Cornell West. It's not like Cornell West is now, you know, who I'm a big fan of Cornell West. But it's not, it's not like Dr. Cornell West is on CN and Fox and his voice is suppressed because his voice is truly the voice of marginal thinking. And that goes for whatever color you are. The problem is when you set, separate things ac across racial lines or minority lines, it's easy to separate people. But the real problem in America is class, lack of education, lack of complex ideas. There's a set of ideas, liberal ideas or conservative ideas that if you adhere to, there's a place for you to go. Sure. But in between those two polarities, it's a no man's land. There's no home in between. There's no gray zone that is comfortable and accommodating of, of people no that gray, think. There's no gray zone. Yeah. David, and, 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 and we... And I, again, yeah. So, sorry, Stefan. David, sorry. we've launched into a tangent that's taken us away yeah. from, <laughs> but not a tangent, a very useful, a very useful angle, I guess, that's going to inform the rest of our conversation about the work that's being done specifically on Latitudes Online as a platform that is wanting to educate, to 
create a platform for African artists and artists of the diaspora and create space for what you referred to earlier on, Stefan, as marginalized voices or voices that would otherwise have to run a traditional gamut that might not necessarily be accessible to them in the art world before. But any vantage point, David, perhaps that you feel that your specific your specific perch has been able to afford you when it comes to understanding, looking at, or giving you an entry point into African art? I'm principally involved at the moment with assisting artists in producing work on the continent and in and then through my relationship with Stefan have the ability to distribute that art so that it gets visibility around the world, including sure. starting in LA. That's really what I'm involved with. But I left South Africa in the seventies and was a military resistor and moved here escaped from apartheid and and I agreed with many of the things that were happening in South Africa back in the 70s seem to be happening here today. I see a lot of things that are going on there, but I'm principally involved in 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 assisting artists, helping artists to make work and get it visible outside of the outside of the continent. Yeah, yeah. And if you could, as we get into the work that's being done at with the residency, the Cape Town residency, and what you're doing there, almost it's seeking to do there, you're absolutely doing it. Could you just break down for me, David, your relationship with Stefan, how that came about? And I guess I'm asking about if you could synthesize the entire journey, the meet cute, the light bulb moment when you realize you have these shared interests and deciding to pull your influence and your reach to create this hub in Woodstock, Cape Town specifically. Obviously, you do have other residencies, two other residencies in LA as well, but with a focus today on what's the Cape Town residency. Stefan and I have been friends for over three decades. So we've watched each other go on different journeys and have been very close friends for, as I said, over three decades. I came up with this idea to establish a residency in Cape Town and wouldn't be able to do it without Stefan what, because of the distribution and essentially presented the idea to him and we've put it together and it's it's been hugely successful in the last year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder what sort of metrics you use when you look at or talk about success or when you define success, David. What does that look like? Success? Yep within the residency programs. Just thinking of a couple of interviews that I've listened to Stefan give and the kind of long-term relationships that he's maintained with the artists that he works with and he supports. I, I wonder within these one and, a, one, and, one and a half years that you've spoken about, what does success look like? And I guess the sort of goals that you've set up for yourself ultimately in doing this work. It's just, art, it's just artists making beautiful work and having the work become visible outside of the continent, basically, and within the continent as well, because yeah. artists that we've found and supported and gotten behind have been able to be, their work has been shown both on the continent and outside of the continent. It's really just showing the ability to show the cultural production outside of the continent mm. and expose it to audiences around the world. Yeah. 
Is there a sort of emotional, perhaps even psychological component to this work or even a coaching component to this work that perhaps doesn't get spoken about often enough? Obviously, the, it's the reason for having or setting up a residency of this nature is precisely because when it comes to material advantages, artists are struggling. They're at a disadvantage from money to materials to just a space to work in and exposure and access. But that other aspect of human and artistic development. Yeah, which is the part that I... Yeah. Tell me more about that. I think when I grew up in South Africa, I grew up in Cape Town in the middle of apartheid. We didn't really have any access to news or information, but we were very highly influenced by things from America, whether it was having a Frigidaire, driving a Chevrolet, using... American products, uh, Kellogg's Rice Krispies for breakfast, sure. reading Amer- reading American comic books. So it occurred to me that as a young South African, there were all these very profound cultural influences coming from America, but even more specifically coming out of California. So the idea that years later, the ability to to get behind artists whose work we loved empower them with resources to make the work and then in the reverse show the cultural production of Africa in the US. That was just an exciting proposition. Coming to you, Stefan, and Stefan, and you know, the work that you do actually on the back of the question to, to David is exactly that. What are the metrics that I guess you are using in your own work as an art patron, as a gallerist, as as a dealer as well? What are the metrics that you're using beyond, obviously, the dollars, which are incredibly important as they land and as they land in as they land in your business account, as they land in the account of the artist? But what else is it that you're seeking to to look at in the long run and say, yes, I was a part of doing that, and this is important? Alan Watts is a famous Californian philosopher. And he, he wrote many books, and he's got a great voice. Alan Watts, if you've never heard of him, mm-hmm. listen to him. And he always speaks about this idea of success, and he likens it to dancing. So when you dance, you're not really thinking about what happens at the end of the dance or <laughs> what happens yeah. at the beginning yeah. of the dance. You start dancing, and you dance. You're not thinking about, in an hour, I'm going to have ended dancing and achieve these <laughs> things. Sure. And, I think that these questions around building businesses, especially around culture, what does success look like? It's the dance. Mm-hmm. It's that, that that moment in which you're dancing, the artist is dancing. I think that's what it's about. As long as you can, as long as you can maintain financial liquidity to keep on dancing, you're yeah. fine. But I think for me, that's what it looks like. And then the rest of it is taken care of in time by posterity and posterity is the is is the true measure of what happens especially in culture especially in culture but there's posterity and then there's the now and something that yes now the now today is completely manipulated it's marketed it's the now is a very dangerous time Mm. in the world why do you say that or what's informing that answer rather because it's it's because it's not it's the now is not isn't you can't trust the mm. now we have entered a realm where the speed and velocity of content distribution 
corporate marketing, the attachment to and visual arts and cultural production around art functions in a very different way to fashion or music. Sure. Fashion and music are much more, are really synchronized with marketing. You sell a song, you want to sell the records. You make a pair of sneakers, you need to produce them and sell them. Sure. Art operates under a different timeline. It functions under a set of rules that is different to fashion, is different to, to, to the way music is distributed. It's linked, but it has its own... Igbo sculptures mm. from hundreds to thousands of years ago have their own timeline. It's almost like art escapes the laws of physics when it comes to human time and works in terms of how it relates to human interaction and civilization in a different way. And I think that's something that as a dealer, a collector, an artist, you can't understand, but you have to be aware of. Sure. And if you operate under that kind of way, you can actually have a big impact. Very difficult to do so today because the world is much more extreme with how it mm -hmm. operates. And I think going back to Africa and how work is made in Africa, all work in Africa is connected to this spiritual, this enormous base of power that in many respects has been the engine of cultural production throughout mankind, frankly. And that cultural impact has been seen in sculptures in China thousands of years ago. There's a connection to African art. There was migration and trade. You see it in Indian work. You see it throughout history. You see it because Africa was the first civilization. The first peoples came sure. from Africa. So this cultural germ is immensely critical. And I think what is where we are right now in a moment of time, I believe, is it's Africa's turn as a young continent, as a continent that, that in aggregate is demographically huge, young, energetic. It's time for Africa to take its position on the world stage as a central power, not just economically, mm. but as a central producer of production, where many of the artists I work with in Africa and David works with are not having conversations. I want to immigrate to New York, live in Brooklyn. I want to move to Paris or London or come to LA. Absolutely. I want to show in these cities. I want to live in Africa. I want to build a studio in Africa. I want to build a residency in Africa. I want to build a library in Africa. It's a very different conversation to anything that's yeah. ever happened. The conversation continues after this message from William Kentridge and the Centre for the Less Good Idea. This October, the Centre for the Less Good Idea invites you to our 10th season of collaborative, experimental and interdisciplinary work. Season 10 celebrates many of the key approaches that have come to define the Centre's way of working at the intersection between drama, dance, music and video. The season will include a collection of 11-minute epics, public processions, a collapsed concert, and a first viewing of the new project, The Great Yes, The Great No. We hope you'll join us from the 18th to the 22nd of October at the Centre for the Less Good Idea in Arts on Main in Maboneng, downtown Johannesburg.
David, I was scrolling through your David Altman official Instagram page and seeing pictures of you at the African Union Heads of State meeting of 2022, if I remember correctly. And most notably, you uh, you took a few pictures with the AU Commission chairperson, former AU Commission chairperson, Minister and Dr. Nkosazanatla Minizuma. And, and I just wondered about the extent, rather, of your influence, your engagement in the world of South African, <coughs> African politics. But then to reach back to Stefan's question or, or a point about infrastructure and the point at which hopefully will come, not in the distant future, where Africans don't need to move to the global north in order to make a sustainable, successful living, etc. I wonder in this capacity or political grounding, if you've thought about what we or what did it take on a sort of macro level in South Africa or on the continent at large to create an environment where success for talented artists isn't a pipe dream, where success is very much something that a child can turn to their parents and say, I want to become an artist. And the parent doesn't say, just study accounting as a fallback plan. And by success, I also just mean stability and consistency of income and not always the stardom and shooting off into the stratosphere of being globally known. Yeah, but I think any parent anywhere in the world, not, in, <laughs> not only in Africa, if you're from New York and you tell your parents that you want to be an artist, they're going sure. to ask you to finish university first and become <laughs> a doctor. Or yeah. I, yeah. I, I don't think that. I don't think that's an African question. But you what does it take good, to support to the good, arts? You have to be a good artist. Sure, you have to be a good artist. But on a macro level, what do you think it might take to support the arts or to have a plan for the arts or even the creative industries at large? In many ways, how we're currently looking at South Korea, for instance, and of course, nothing's perfect, but South Korea, for instance, as now an exporter of, I guess, cultural soft power in a way that nobody, or at least I was not looking out for 15 years ago. What's needed to create that kind of scaffolding if it might at all be something we want? Stefan? Sam Samsung Electronics. <laughs> so none of this happens without that manufacturing strength and power. Yeah, I mean, yeah Mickey Lee, who I know is from, from a Samsung Electronics family. It's, it, it's, it, there's enormous amounts of capital. Enormous allowance of capital and a government or a ministry of arts and culture, perhaps, that dares to dream and put its money where its mouth is? I think that, that, that it's, it, first of all, it's a country with very high GDP. It's a country that consumes its own culture. It's got, it's a, you know, I think the capital and the development of K-pop is a very systematic thing. Also, there was a very good article, expose on K-pop. It's a crazy system. Mm -hmm. It's one of the greatest systems of cultural exploitation in the world. These K-pop stars essentially aren't allowed to have boyfriends, girlfriends. They have to adhere to very specific rules. It's, a, it's not the cultural production of the Rolling Stones in, in the West. It's, mm. a, it's an extremely rigid structure of manufacturing content yeah, and cultural production and sure. output that's extremely and specifically controlled and outputted. If you have a deeper dive into K-pop and the machinery behind it, I think you'll find you'll find some problems, <laughs> to mm, say mm. the least, in yeah. in this form of of work, and it's extremely sophisticated. But one could also argue that this is a cultural output that 
does not accept individual thinking. It's, it's in many respects, it has authoritarian elements to it in the way that it is marketed, developed, and distributed. I've, I, it's a, that's a whole, K-pop is a whole, com it's a very interesting conversation. I urge you and your audience to actually have a deep dive yeah. into researching the, the, that whole system. Yeah. So what of course, brilliant development. Yeah. In, in cinema, cinema requires capital and a skilled production base, which the Koreans have. And they've had very sophisticated thousands of years of culture on, on all respects, very technologically advanced society. I think, yeah. Yeah. Essentially, here. Like what's needed is. Yeah. Sorry, as you were saying, Stefan? Africa's in a different position. You go to Ghana, people send their goods to Ghana, their waste, they send their flip-flops, their sneakers, sure. their clothing. Africa is overlooked by the West. It's not respected in the same way that, in, in the way that it should be respected. Its leaders across the continent are infected with corruption. It, it's a different continent, but it has, it, it has the power of what I believe is authentic cultural production. To support that requires time. Mm. Time, that's it. Mm. You can't buy time. And I think certain kinds of cultural production will not find the place in the world that it needs to have until we fix other aspects of the world like equality, like education, like healthcare. When you have a sick world, you cannot appreciate the kinds of cultural production that are resonant with authenticity and community and values. It's a complicated thing. We're in a very complicated space. The key is for that cultural production to exist, for it to be made, for it to, whether it gets seen or consumed, I don't think is that relevant. The key with art is that it actually physically is able to be created yeah. and remain intact during a longer period of time where it can find its place in building the bridge between the present yeah. and the future that's connected to the mm. past. So in many ways, I'm hearing you say that there's definitely a necessity for African artists or artists in general to do what they feel compelled or propelled to do with integrity and with the hard work and I guess some <laughs> intervention of God, your gods or luck, whatever it might be, the rest might and will take care of itself. But essentially in the interim, your job is to create that art with integrity outside of the many things that you may it, or may it, not it, be it, able to control. Exactly, to support it. So even your earlier question about success, the question of success essentially em immediately demarcates a space of capital. Mm. A, a, a success is in, in, in the now is linked to capital. And I think a lot of artists, especially artists who, who are poor, who are come from backgrounds that are marginalized, this attachment to capital, it takes the eye off the ball of what you need to make. I get calls from many artists, David introduced me to many, and I find many who just want to make money. They want to call, I need money. Oh, can I change my style and sell my paintings? I'm like, no, find your style. And I've had many conversations with artists on the continent. I've been fiercely 
tough with them. And I think the problem is the development of culture, the development of artists requires a much a much slower and much more sort of responsible thing. What happened in the last three years, for example, with black portraiture, for mm -hmm. example, with the enormous consumption of black figuration in the West, was very damaging, in my mm, opinion, to, to black cultural production, because the West wants to commoditize and consume blackness, but it doesn't actually care about blackness. It, it wants to sell blackness, but they don't want to sell the blackness of Cornell West. They want to sell the blackness of Pharrell. They want to sell a very, they have a very specific kind of black. They want to sell the blackness of Barack Obama from Chicago. They don't want to sell the blackness of, it's a very specific kind of consumption. Mm -hmm. And blackness is, a, is an enormous language of enormous, like the size of the continent of Africa is completely not even understood in the West. They're like, oh, there's no even comprehension sure. of the scale of what this continent is and the diversity of the continent unto yeah. itself. And I think it's very important for artists on the continent to find their voice, develop their voice, and to do, you're an artist, you sit in a studio. I want to make money, I want to show in New York, I want to drive, a, I want a fancy, which is fine. But then you're just going to produce what Amuaka Boaf is producing mm. because he was able to success. You see this huge copycat. And that's the problem. When the artists get to this thing, all I need to do is survive, have enough money for material, and I need time to develop my practice. You can't develop a practice in a year. You need time. So the way that I think artists think about capital and the way the system talks about capital, talks about success talks about monetary success, the art fair sure. system is, a, is as well a, a system that if you don't sell at the art fair, that gallery is not going to ever take you to another mm, art fair. It's an indictment against There's the no dancing. system. The dancing stops immediately. Mm. No more dancing. Mm -hmm. The key is to dance for as long as humanly possible. Within mm -hmm. that dance, within that journey, that life journey of dancing, emerges the power of your voice, the power of your cultural production emerges the bridge between the now, the future, and the past. And that is when, what it is fundamentally about. Yeah. When you have conversations like this, Stefan and David, how often are you met with perhaps gallerists or other people in the art world looking at you either saying that's that's a privilege uniquely afforded to you for whatever reason and we're not in the business of being a patron who maintains a relationship with an artist as they iterate as they explore new styles as they grow and are finally uh, and are finally reach the place they want to that they've been aiming for all along and Perhaps I can't finance an artist and pay for them to live and have a family and all these things. What sort of answers do you, are you met with when you're having these discussions? I'm criticized for what I do. So I'm criticized by, I think, I, I'm in business. I sure. make money. Sure. I, I know how to make money in the art world. I think that it, it's what I'm saying is if I look at Serge Tukwe-Klati, who's an artist I've worked with. Yeah who makes complex works and has a complex practice and a broad practice, a vast practice, yeah. performance, installation, painting, sculpture, everything. Uh, I think if you develop responsibly, 
the economic outcomes are much more satisfactory, mm -hmm. better than if you develop irresponsible. Mm -hmm. Galleries are inexpensive to open. You need a space, 500 square feet. You need relationships with artists. They're local, they hang on the wall. The gallery system has a very low barrier to sure. entry, but to develop properly requires very different skills. And I think that also the gallery system is effectively a monopoly in the sense that it, the gallery system controls certain art fairs. And I was, as a gallery, I was rejected from the 154 art fair. Mm. I'm the biggest collector of emerging contemporary art in California. Done what? shows consistently of it. Why? What reasons did they give you? It, nothing. It's political. But she came to see me. I had a nice relationship. We, had, we were friendly. They initially said yeah. But obviously, the other galleries on the network were like, we don't, that guy's dangerous there. And you know what? I am dangerous because I have a vision and I have, and I have a commitment and I have a both a financial and intellectual and an emotional commitment that goes beyond the normal. And that makes you dangerous what? because it's a competitive force yeah. that is not rational to be emotionally connected to something, to believe in the, I'm a pan-Africanist. I really am. I believe yeah. in, if you look at my Instagram, I'm hashtag Africa rising. I get great pride from the power of Africa. I love the continent. It's, I think it's a, a magical place. It's my secret power. Yeah. Even as a white man, a white Jew from South Africa, the, the continent of Africa has infected my spiritual bones. Yeah. And I read about Yoruba culture, Igbo culture. It's, and I think it's, I think the gallery system is a small system. It doesn't understand. It, it's a very successful system, but it's a system that unfortunately has done a very good job marketing artists, but it's also done a very good job at excluding mm -hmm. artists who deserve to be heard and seen. Mm -hmm. And I want to change that part of the conversation. <laughs> well, carry on, David, yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, and I think that uh, with the technology 2023 and what Lucy and Roberta are doing with Latitude yes. is also adding to this. So this question of, do you want to move, do you want to move your studio from Nairobi or Joburg or Cape Town to New York or wherever? You don't have to do it sure. because there's additional new, like Latitudes is a fantastic platform to, to share the cultural production from the continent. And thanks for picking up on that. Actually, I was laughing earlier on because you were chuckling at Stefan talking about being a threat for, to those that are entrenched in the system or gallery system as it is. But also you brought, we brought us quite nicely to this point that you, Davis just made about technology, right? The promises of technology, the opportunities that technology has been able to open up for young and emerging artists, but also something that you alluded to earlier on, which was, I guess, the problem of being so busy trying to be current or I guess the word is relevant 
that the art itself falls by the wayside and the job of being visible and being seen, whether it's on social media, whether it might be in whatever marketing or PR platforms, it, it consumes the artist to that extent. Talk to me, Stefan, about what it takes to help an artist create a profile, to raise a profile, and perhaps maybe what that does it always necessitate a confluence of of celebrity, of money, or can an artist with just the help of technology, and by that I mean the internet, get to where they want to be in contemporary in contemporary times? Yes, I think they can. Celebrity culture is essentially the propaganda arm of the corporate state, effectively. Celebrities are trapped within a a very specific role that that if they migrate out of, they no longer... This is Guy Debord, I'm quoting here, from Society of the Spectacle. Mm. I think, especially in Africa, Instagram, social media, and over the years talking to artists in Africa who use social media and then talking to artists in the West who are like, oh, I don't use Instagram. I'm like, yeah, you're a white artist in the West. You don't need to use Instagram. You live in New York City. You live in Los Angeles. You go out to a bar and you bump into curators at the Whitney. (laughs) You're in Addis Ababa or you're in Zimbabwe. Social media is your lifeline. There's also all of these things that are like, that are used. So I think Technology helps. I think you have to communicate consistently. You have to build a bridge. You need to make it very decipherable for your cultural production to be seen or understood using social media. So it, it, it has to be obscure. You do need a cell phone because you, you do you need some level of technology. But I think it's I think it's very helpful, mm-hmm. and I think it can be done. Yeah. I also think artists should communicate with everyone who reaches out to mm. them. I think they should, They the, even artists who work with me, I encourage you to talk to other galleries, other collectors. Listen to, talk to people who are critical of me. See if they've got a point. See if what they're saying makes sense. It's like a political campaign building a career. You need as many mm-hmm. votes as possible. You need right-wing votes, left-wing votes, crazy votes, normal votes. What the job of the <coughs> gallery and the dealer is, is different to the job of the artist. Mm-hmm. The politician and the artist must have as much support as possible from whatever corner of the earth they can get. After the break, we continue our conversation. When it comes to fuss-free flying, Lyft is South Africa's most flexible airline. With up to 25 daily flights, three major destinations, fee-free changes and cancellations, as well as Lyft Premium, the business class-inspired offering, Lyft caters to all travellers, even those with small dogs. Their dog-friendly flights mean you can fly with your small dog in the cabin. Plus, you can look forward to free coffee and snacks on every flight. Experience Lyft for yourself. Visit lift.co.za to book your seat. I want to talk about the necessity of community and relationship amongst artists and what that looks like in and you can take that outside of the residency program. But what I've seen over the years as I talk to South African artists and the especially a younger cohort, but artists in general, is just the importance of an exchange of ideas, the importance of someone more experienced or older 
having your back, giving you a heads up about this is dangerous ground, do this rather, don't do this. And how do you see the importance of of community from the starting point, the ground level, when artists are out there trying to make get their works seen and hopefully loved and accepted? Well, from in the residency, my experience is, first of all, I don't interfere, but... We've, crea- we've created an environment where in watching artists work together. So the residency, the space is open. So you'll have artists working next to each other. I personally don't interfere at all. I just look mm. and I can see that the artists themselves, in terms of the community, they're sharing ideas. So you have an artist coming from London working next to an artist who's from Johannesburg and you can see the influences, and it's just a thing of beauty to see this cooperation, the collaboration. They create their own sense of community, which is a space and environment which we've created. Yeah. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can explain it other than to say it's a beautiful dance to watch. Yeah. So there's, yeah. So it's a question of standing back and just watching this thing happen. And it's, so far, it's just been really magnificent. Yeah, I always can only imagine how fulfilling it must be, if nothing else, to, as you say, watch that dance happen, but also to be able to get in on the ground floor, Stefan, whether you're representing or, get, or getting initiate or starting relationships with your art. You, men- you mentioned Serge earlier on, whether it's Takunda Biliat, who is amongst the roster of artists that you represent, Spusis or Duma, Cameron Platter. There's a whole plethora of them. David, I'm going to ask you, when you, and I guess this might be, to be cheesy, a bit of a couple's jeopardy, answering questions about yeah. the other in this instance, perhaps seeing how, yeah. testing testing the friendship. When you see certain artists, David, how do you know that Stefan is going to absolutely light up when he sees their work or speaks to them or meets them for the first time? What tends to be that common denominator? Well, look, I have my own taste and I have a sense of what Stefan might like. And essentially in our relationship where he will send me pictures and he'll ask me, what do you think? And I, and we have a back and forth, but we also have a larger team of people in other places where we can share images and go, Hey, what do you think? And so it's quite a collaborative, it's quite a collaborative experience. Yeah, but sort of day to day, I would see something maybe using social media, see something on Instagram, or obviously get images sent on a regular basis from all over the world, not just the continent, but from all over the world. What do you think? And then it's just a function of, I like it. What do you think? And that's how we work, basically. Yeah, yeah. I know Stefan, David did say that in in the residency setup, he is hands-off, essentially facilitating things so that the artists can do what they do best. And of course, there is that there is that exchange of South African or African-based artists and those that have come in in I'll guess I'll call it an exchange program. But what more is what more does Stefan sorry, David lend to that to to that atmosphere, to that program that I guess he's perhaps being modest about? I spoke about the sort of emotional and psychological support that he probably brings to bear. David is a man who is very wise, who loves artists, l- loves loves hanging out, loves providing a a family and community background, 
I am an unmanageable human being, difficult to get on with, impatient, impulsive, quick to no. anger. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm someone who just, who's just moving too fast to, to have. And I think we have an amazing team now. We, the company has 45 people in sure. it now. It, it has a global presence. I would say the Africa component of it is about 25 to 35% of mm. what we do. David runs the Africa side of the business and oversees and manages those relationships, especially in Southern Africa, Zimbabwe. And he's an, just an amazing human being. And I'm going to ask you very, when we finish up, one more hope of yours, Stefan, and you, David. But quickly before we do say goodbye, you opened up, you've got three spaces in, in California. You've got three spaces in LA. Is the market that deep, that hungry, that appreciative, and perhaps give us a sense for those that you know either haven't had the benefit of traveling to California, spending time there? The, the, How big are things the there that you could have... Or- yeah. The market is neither deep nor appreciative. And yet. But that's irrelevant. It's a dance. Yeah. Okay. The market is not deep <laughs> or appreciative. The market consumes in a specific way. The documentation of the shows. So if you go to Simkovitz Gallery, it's very well documented. It's archival. Whether 100 people come to the show or 300, it's not relevant because thousands sure. of people see it on social media. And it's archived and professionally photographed. Spaces in LA are cheap relative to New York and London. It's a developing market, but I think there's a myth that LA is, and this is a warning to all galleries. I've lived in LA for 30 years. I know literally everyone in LA, for good or worse. The market in LA is, is much thinner than people think. And there are galleries that are coming at are open in LA to take advantage of the market. It's a tough market. It's sure. a very tribal place, LA. People who are intimidated by the prospect of dipping their feet into the art waters, or there's something special or magical I need to know before I can or do, what do you say to them? <sighs> mm. I try and make it, I just try and tell them it's okay. Not to, it's, I try and figure out what they like sure. and to tell them it's there's no such thing as knowing nothing, that everyone has a relationship to aesthetics or cultural production Absolutely. based on how they grew up, the aesthetics of how they grew up. And that's it, it's something that it, instead of saying you should like this, because a lot of people, I don't like that. I'm like, tell me what you like and let me find something that's good art that you like as opposed to this art. Because I think a lot of people are like, this is good art. You don't like, you don't understand. I'm like, well, let me understand what you like. And I'm sure I can find something that is good art within your aesthetic zip code, sure. within your taste that you like. And then you show them something that's actually real art that they like. And then you move from there. And it's like training someone to get off a peanut allergy. You give them a tiny bit of peanut and they get a little rash. You give them a little more peanut and the rash goes away and you give them a bigger peanut. And eventually after a decade, when they eat a peanut, they're like, you know, that that's how you treat allergies. You give someone a little bit of the thing that causes the allergy until their body trains themselves yeah. to get I love uh, that. 
same thing with culture. <laughs> it's like curing a peanut. Oven. Absolutely love that. Last one, your wish, your emperor of the galaxy, and you have one big wish for African art and African artists. David, I'll start with you. <laughs> First of all, Stefan is one of the biggest fans, supporters, and lovers of African art that anybody could actually meet, really, and one of the most important collectors. My biggest wish is that don't let anybody know through this podcast what a fantastic, generous, kind, smart human being he is (laughs) because he loves his um, dangerous, bad boy uh, reputation. So please don't spoil it. (laughs) We'll keep it between the three of us. Uh, Stefan, your wish for African art and artists. (laughs) My wish for African artists. Stop drinking so much. Uh-huh. And when you get success and when you get success, don't go buy a Galinda Wagen and a Range Rover. Thank you. Build a house. Yeah. Don't, don't look at don't look at Jay Z and Puff Daddy and the Americans and, and don't go buy a big ugly mansion and a fancy car. Make the work. Why are you You're coming? Good. Why are you coming for the G Wagon dream? Let people aspire <laughs> to something. Come on. <laughs> No, but no, but this is this aspiration, and this mm. goes for everyone. Why sure. aspire to a G wagon? Mm. Why not aspire to a library? Why not aspire to a school? Why not aspire to a beautiful home overlooking the ocean mm. with a magnificent studio? Why aspire to the constructs that capital in the West has marketed to you as a, as success as an endpoint? Why? Why does there have to be this aspiration to, I'm a rich guy. I don't have a G-Wagon. I don't want a G-Wagon. I want a community. I want to invest my money in areas where there's risk and helping David set up the Cape Town Art Residency. Koloki Niami, very good artist. I'm sure, I don't know if you know his work. Just opened a, yeah. a building a library yeah. in Kenya, in Nairobi, David. Res- and a residency and, uh, in Kenya. Beautiful. And a residency. Beautiful. Yeah. Ibrahim Mahama, yes. what he built at Red Clay Studios in Ghana. Yeah. Aspire yeah. to that. What Ibrahim yeah. Mahama has done is yeah. ama- Amuaka's driving around Ghana with five G Wagons. Ibrahim Mahama has built something that for thousands of years will be there. Mm. It's a- aspire to build your infrastructure responsibly. Don't get inebriated in both physically and when success hits in terms of money. Build the infrastructure. And there's a lot of great examples of it doing. Kahinda Wiley with his residency in Senegal, great responsible things. And I think don't look at the West for defining your success. Define your own success and look at the great continent of Africa and build it in your own way. Build it in accordance with your own, the guidelines of your ancestors. Mm. And that's my advice. And on that beautifully existential note. Yeah, the West will make you conform and bend to its powers. And and the powers of the West are the powers of monopoly capitalism at this point in time. Mm. The West is in radical need of both spiritual, intellectual, political, and economic reform. And, and, and as in, 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 I believe, in an existential crisis of understanding that, that the solutions that we need to find are not Western solutions or Southern solutions or North and South. They're global solutions. Mm-hmm. We need, 
and this is a bigger conversation. We need we need plans that are global today. We don't need plans that are local. We need the world to come together as one unit, with one vision, with one, with an ability to basically not demarcate our interests as a country, but to demarcate the world's interests as a globe. And hopefully, not hopefully, Africa will play a big role in that. And the cultural production coming out of Africa will help define that conversation. From your lips to God's ears, David and Stefan, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate your yeah. time and your insights. And it's yeah. really been amazing to just glean yeah. some of that from you. Thanks for having us. And I want to say one, one other thing. Anyone can reach out to me on Instagram, can send me a DM, can send me their work. My phone number is public. My email is public. I'm totally accessible. And I might be short. I might be rude. But I will look and I will respond. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Thanks for listening to the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Rafil Wembakanyane, for the Rare Event Foundry. Spike Valentine is on technical for DBO Medium and a big thank you to the Latitudes team. Mm-hmm.